From PRX, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Bobby Bascom. Environmental justice in the presidential debate and how climate change is shaping Senate races in North Carolina and Georgia. One of the things that you're seeing in both of these states is a lot of migration of young people. It's just not acceptable for these new immigrants to North Carolina and to Georgia to deny climate change. Also a chat with an environmentalist drag queen on making nature more accessible for all. When I do drag in the outdoors, I feel the most me. And yes, that means literally backpacking in high heels, um, which you can think is a very silly and stupid and dangerous thing, but so is riding a mountain bike down a mountain at 45 miles an hour. So, you know, pick and choose your danger in the outdoors. I just choose to uh, wear some six-inch heels. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRX in the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bobby Bascom. And I'm Steve Kerwood. Well, Bobby, the second and final live presidential debate before the elections once again touched on the climate crisis and broke some new ground on environmental justice, huh? Yeah, Steve. And, you know, there's nothing like a mute button and a strong moderator to make it possible to actually hear those points. So let's listen to some excerpts of the debate, starting when Joe Biden pointed to, quote, good paying jobs, unquote, in the wind and solar industries and the rapid growth of solar. Donald Trump had a sharp retort short on facts. I know more about wind than you do. It's extremely expensive, kills all the birds. It's very intermittent. It's got a lot of problems. And they happen to make the windmills in both Germany and China. And the fumes coming up, if you're a believer in carbon emission, the fumes coming up to make, make these massive windmills is more than anything that we're talking about with natural gas, which is very clean. One other thing. Find me a solar. Well, in fact, President Trump's own scientists in the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service say that bird deaths from collisions with wind turbines are a tiny fraction of birds killed by cats, as well as those uh, collisions with buildings and power lines. Yeah. And then after some back and forth on fracking, moderator Kristen Welker brought up a topic never heard before in general presidential election debates, environmental justice. President Trump, people of color are much more likely to live near oil refineries and chemical plants. In Texas, there are families who worry the plants near them are making them sick. Your administration has rolled back regulations on these kinds of facilities. Why should these families give you another four years in office? Uh, The families that we're talking about are employed heavily and they're making a lot of money, more money than they've ever made. If you look at the kind of numbers that we produce for Hispanic, for black, for Asian, It's nine times greater the percentage gain than it was under in three years than it was under eight years of the two of them, to put it nicely. Nine times more. Now, somebody lives, I have not heard the numbers or the statistics that you're saying, but they're making a tremendous amount of money economically. We saved it. And I saved it again a number of months ago when oil was crashing because of the pandemic. We saved it. We got, say what you want about relationship, we got Saudi Arabia, Mexico, and Russia to cut back way back. We saved our oil industry, and now it's very vibrant again. And everybody has very inexpensive gasoline. Remember Vice President Biden, your response, and then we're going to have a final question for both of you. My response is that those people live on what they call fence lines. He doesn't understand this. They live near chemical plants that, in fact, pollute chemical plants and oil plants and refineries that pollute. I used to live near that when I was growing up in Claymont, Delaware. 
and all the more oil refineries in Marcus Hook and the Delaware River than there is any place, including in Houston at the time. When my mom get in the car and when, when there were first frost to drive me to school, turning the windshield wiper, there'd be oil slick in the window. That's why so many people in my state were dying and getting cancer. The fact is those frontline communities, it doesn't matter what you're paying them, it matters how you keep them safe. What do you do? And you impose restrictions on the pollutions that it, the pollutants coming out of those fence line communities. There was far less interrupting during this debate compared to the last one, but there was still plenty of jabbing nonetheless. Okay, I have one final would question. Would he close it down falls, the oil industry? It falls. Would you close it down falls. the oil industry? I would transition from the oil industry, yes. Oh, I would that's transition. a big It you. is a big statement. That's a because big statement. I would stop. Why would you do that? Because the oil industry pollutes significantly. Oh, I see. And here's the deal. But that's you can't a big do statement. That. Well, if you let me finish the statement, because it has to be replaced by renewable energy over time, over time. And I'd stop giving to the oil industry, I'd stop giving them federal subsidies. He won't give federal subsidies to the, to the gas, excuse me, to, the, to uh, solar and wind. Yeah. Why are we giving it to oil industry? We actually do All give right. it to solar and wind. We and have that's one maybe final the biggest question. statement in terms of business. That's the biggest statement. Okay. Because we basically what he's saying question, is he is Mr. going President. to destroy the oil industry. Okay. Will you remember that, Texas? Will you okay. remember that, Pennsylvania, Oklahoma? Vice President Biden, let me give you 10 seconds to respond, Ohio. and then I have to get to the final question. Vice President Biden. He takes everything out of context, but the point is, look, we have to move toward a net zero emissions. The first place to do that by the year 2035 is in energy okay. production, by 2050, totally. Bobby, for me, the takeaway from the second debate is the new place climate change has on the list of public priorities. It's now not if, but what to do. And I think it's fair to say whichever man wins this election, pressure will be on to fight climate disruption. Yes, Steve. And you can see climate now in the Senate elections as well this year in several key races. Yeah, Bobby, we've covered a lot of these battleground states before. And uh, I think today you have something for us on North Carolina and the Georgia special election, as we already covered the contest between David Perdue and John Ossoff. Right. I talked with Marianne Laval, a reporter for Inside Climate News, about these two races in the South where Democratic candidates are becoming more and more competitive. And once again, there's an increasing focus on climate change and environmental justice. I started by asking Marianne about the Republican incumbent in North Carolina, Senator Tom Tillis, and where he stands on climate change in the environment. Well, Tom Tillis is kind of the example of a Republican who's trying to evolve his position on climate change. Mm -hmm. uh, when he was first running for Senate six years ago, like all of the other Republicans he was running against, absolutely said he just doesn't buy that climate change is happening. And uh, very early on, he was really unabashed promoter of fossil fuel development, including drilling offshore of North Carolina. Well, since then, North Carolina has been hit by five hurricanes, which all, you know, in various ways have caused a lot of damage in the state. And the coastal counties, even though a lot of them are Republican, they are not in favor of offshore drilling at all. And it was kind of easy for Tom Tillis to be in favor of offshore drilling six years ago when President Obama was in. It wasn't going to happen. But with President Trump, he was moving forward 
on offshore drilling. So fast forward to today, he kind of took credit for the Trump administration's decision just a few weeks ago to say, we're going to back off on offshore drilling for a few states, uh, including North Carolina. And so Tom Tillis is still in line with the Republican position on energy. He votes very, very closely in line with President Trump on almost everything. And he has a very low score from the League of Conservation Voters on his environmental record. But he is talking about himself as someone who cares about climate change. He just doesn't want to hurt the economy. Well, let's talk now about his challenger, Democrat Cal Cunningham. He served in the U.S. Army Reserve and as a North Carolina state senator, and he recently put out a campaign ad that shows North Carolina getting pummeled by hurricanes, and he links that to climate change. Let's have a listen to that ad. Taking on climate change is going to be a priority of mine because of the impact it's having right here on North Carolina. That is not lightning. Those are transformers blowing out. This storm is so immense. With the size of the storms, we can't deny it. Twice in the last two years, 500-year floods devastating large portions of our state. What's really interesting about that ad is it's not that common for uh, the candidates themselves to feature climate change in their ads, especially in a very um, purple state like North Carolina, where the Democrats are trying to appeal to the moderates. They're not just going after progressives. So really to make this strong statement on climate change by Cunningham is a statement of how much traction the issue has in North Carolina. He definitely backed strong environmental legislation when he was in the North Carolina legislature. He also was a business person who worked for a consulting company that helped companies reduce their waste. So that also gives him some green credentials. Well, let's turn now to Georgia, where there are two seats up for grabs. We covered the race between incumbent Senator David Perdue and John Ossoff a few weeks ago on the show. But there's also a special election in Georgia to permanently fill the seat of former Senator Johnny Isaacson, who had to step down last year because of illness. That seat was temporarily filled by Republican Kelly Loeffler. What can you tell us about her environmental record? Right. Well, Kelly Loeffler has voted... 100% with President Trump. She has a very, very uh, solid record with him. She has voted against things like renewable energy. You almost hear her kind of echoing the rhetoric of the White House on many controversial issues. And I would expect her to do the same on climate. Well, Senator Loeffler is up against some 20 challengers in this special election. Let's look at a, just a couple of the front runners, starting with Republican Doug Collins. Now, both are Republicans, as I said, but how do they compare and contrast on these issues, if at all? Well, Doug Collins, again, very, very closely aligned with President Trump. He's very conservative. He doesn't talk about climate change, but you could expect him to be very much in line with the White House on 
climate change. That has kind of been his pitch. The really interesting person is Reverend Raphael Warnock. Mm, He's the leading Democrat in the race, according to polls. What can you tell us about him? Right. And the interesting thing is that he's been just slightly in the lead in that race ahead of everyone. And he is a pastor. He has been pastor of Martin Luther King's church, the Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. And he has really made environmental justice his top issue. He has worked on interfaith meetings on environmental justice even before running for Senate. He brought Al Gore in to talk to folks in his church. He has really tried to energize folks in the church to work on climate and environmental justice issues. He really tries to stress the connection between the environment and poverty. Well, both North Carolina and Georgia are historically red states that are starting to turn blue or at least a shade of purple. Generally, how would you say that climate change and the environment play into that shifting political orientation? I think one of the things that you're seeing in both of these states is there is a lot of migration of young people to the states. And it's not that the young people moving in are like really radical progressives, but it's just not acceptable for these new immigrants to North Carolina and to Georgia. It's not acceptable to deny climate change. That seems like really backwards. And I think they don't want to tear down the economy, but they want to build it up. And they see a pro-climate action as the, uh, you know, pro-economic growth sort of approach. And I think you're seeing that in both Georgia and North Carolina. Marianne Laval is a reporter for Inside Climate News. Marianne, thanks for taking this time with me today. Glad to be here. You can hear our program anytime on our website or get an audio download. The address is LOE.org. That's LOE.org. There you'll also find pictures and more information about our stories. And we'd like to hear from you. You can reach us at comments at LOE.org. Once again, comments at LOE.org. Our postal address is Post Office Box 99007, Boston, Massachusetts, 02199. You can call our listener line anytime at 617-287-4121. That's 617-287-4121. Coming up, a field guide to easing climate anxiety especially for young people. If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you. 
It's Living on Earth. I'm Bobby Bascom. And I'm Steve Kerwood. As the planet continues to warm, the ice of Antarctica and Greenland melts faster and faster, adding to sea level rise. Scientists say even if the Paris Climate Agreement goals are met, melting from the West Antarctic ice sheet alone could raise the oceans some eight feet by the end of the century. Sooner than that, in less than 30 years, the ice losses from Antarctica combined with the rapid melting of Greenland are projected to elevate the seas one, if not two feet. And that doesn't factor in the impacts of thermal expansion of water already in the ocean and the melting of mountain glaciers. Here to discuss the latest research is Michael Oppenheimer, professor of geosciences and international affairs at Princeton University. Michael Oppenheimer, welcome to Living on Earth. Glad to be here. Walk me through the science behind the melting of the Antarctic and Greenland ice sheets. What's going on? First of all, let's understand what an ice sheet is and how it forms. Think about a pancake on a griddle. The pancake slowly spreads out. And the reason it does is the weight of the liquid, when you pour it down in one spot, basically pushes the pancake so the circle of pancake expands. Well, an ice sheet forms when instead of pancake batter, snow falls on the middle of a very cold continent. And as that mountain of snow piles up and transitions to ice, the weight is increasing. And that weight just under the force of gravity pulls the whole thing down and the ice spreads out and eventually covers the continent. That's what happens in Greenland and that's what happens in Antarctica. And then that addition of ice due to snowfall is balanced out because as the pancake or mountain of snow and ice spreads and gets toward the ocean, well, the ocean is warmer than the land area in the Arctic. And number two, as that mountain of pancake or ice collapses and spreads, it's getting lower in altitude. So if you go toward the edges where the ocean is, you're at sea level eventually. And the atmosphere is colder up high and warmer down near sea level. So those two effects mean that the ice around the edge is going to start to melt a little bit. If you look at the Greenland ice sheet, the primary contribution to sea level rise is the runoff of melting water. Antarctica is a little more complicated. The ice doesn't just melt there. It doesn't melt much at all, in fact. What it does is it slides. Just think of that pancake again. The stuff is oozing towards the edge of the pan. Same thing with the ice. It oozes or flows. And when it gets to the water, to the ocean edge, pieces break off. Those are icebergs. So there are two contributions to sea level rise from these ice sheets. Direct melting in their warmer parts and flow and formation of icebergs when the flowing ice gets to the ocean's edge. Michael, give me some numbers. What's going on with the nexus of sea level rise and the loss of ice? Well, let's look at it historically, what happened during the 20th century, for instance. Sea level rose about six inches, and that was largely absent any significant contribution, except for the last 15 years, maybe, of that century from the ice sheets. And it rose six inches, largely due to thermal expansion and the melting of mountain glaciers. As I said, the rate is now accelerated. It's going now at sea level rise, the equivalent of 12 inches per century. But it's not going to just stay at that level. It's already accelerating and it's going to get faster and faster. By the end of this century, depending on which projections you look at, 
the rate of sea level rise could wind up being about five times what it was, about five times that six inches in the 20th century. And we're having trouble dealing with the six inches, or we had trouble in the last century. In this century, five times as fast sea level rise is going to be awfully difficult to deal with. At this point, we're not ready for it. We're not primed to deal with it. We haven't deployed the adaptive measures that we really need to at the scope and rate that we need to. So this is a a looming, not just a difficulty, but in some cases, a disaster. So talk to me about the challenges that coastal communities face now amid these rising sea levels. Well, there are two major challenges. One is sea level is rising in some sense faster than people's ability to grasp what's going on and government's ability to mobilize and act. And secondly, there's a large uncertainty about exactly what's going to happen because of the uncertainty in the behavior of the ice sheets. But we know that the thermal expansion of seawater is happening. We know that mountain glaciers are happening. That part is not subject to a lot of uncertainty. And furthermore, the other big uncertainty in this problem is how much greenhouse gas we're going to emit into the atmosphere in the next 20, 30, 40 years, and therefore how warm the planet will get, and therefore how much ice melt and thermal expansion will get. And when you put all that together, what you see interestingly is the difference in the sea level rise projections between a lot of emissions and not too much emissions is not very much until you get out to about 20, 40, 2050. So for the next approximately 30 years, you can say with fairly good confidence that we know what the sea level rise is going to be. So what is that number? How much sea level rise for parts of the United States by the year 2050? Well, we're talking about one or two feet, which may not sound huge, but on a typical East Coast beach, a foot of sea level rise takes away 100 feet of beach horizontally going inland unless you keep feeding the beach. And that's just sort of symbolic of what's going to happen. A lot of areas aren't beachy. There are buildings in places like downtown Boston or downtown Manhattan that are just a few feet above sea level. And you add high tide to it and you add a storm to it. And all of a sudden you got a lot of flooding, just like happened in Hurricane Sandy or forget Hurricane Sandy, a big nor'east storm. A nor'easter in this neighborhood does the same thing at a slightly smaller scale. So we have a problem today. This isn't a problem for the future. This is what we fail to protect against adequately today. If the ice continues to melt at this pace, what does this mean for the future of humanity? Well, it means, among other things, that we are inevitably going to lose a lot of cultural heritage because a lot of human cultural heritage is built right along the coast. And That's unfortunate, but it also means huge amounts of money lost. And it also means lives lost because people are caught unawares in big floods that happen now more and more regularly. So before you go, give me an assessment, please, of what policies you think are necessary to curb this damage to the ice sheets, to at least slow down this process. And what do you think the role of the United States is in this? And for that matter, what do you think of the various climate proposals that are around here in the U.S.? The bottom line is we're not going to get anywhere, and we're always going to be behind if we don't implement very quickly a serious program to reduce emissions of the greenhouse gases, particularly carbon dioxide, from burning coal oil and natural gas that are causing the problem in the first place. As much adaptation as you do, 
climate change will always outrun it if you don't control the greenhouse gas emissions. As much greenhouse gas emissions as you control, it won't be enough to protect people unless we also do a significant amount of adaptation. So we have to do both. We need to build cities and other settlements smartly so they're not so exposed to sea level rise. There should be funding for building seawalls, surge barriers, whatever coastal defenses are necessary, where they're necessary. And there should be funding for facilitating people who make the choice to relocate away from the coast or away from forest fire areas or away from any area that's threatened by climate change and where there's a limit to how much protection the governments can offer or that individuals can take upon themselves. So it all fits together that solving climate change isn't like off in some corner by itself. Solving the climate change problem is integral to setting our society right again. Michael Oppenheimer is a professor of geosciences and international affairs at Princeton University. Michael, thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Been a pleasure. From melting glaciers and sea level rise to tropical deforestation and habitat loss, the many problems associated with climate disruption can feel overwhelming and, frankly, depressing. And people are already feeling the impacts of climate change that will be with us for the rest of our lives. With such a burdensome future, many young people are organizing for climate action. Yet it can be hard to deal with the feelings of powerlessness and despair that can accompany the hard work of social movements. So, for some cheer, they might want to read a new book called A Field Guide to Climate Anxiety, How to Keep Your Cool on a Warming Planet. Its author is Sarah Jaquette Ray, a professor of environmental studies at Humboldt State University in California. In front of a live audience at a Goodreads on Earth virtual event, she spoke with Living on Earth's Jenny Doring. So, what inspired you to write this book, A Field Guide to Climate Anxiety? Yeah, so uh, what inspired me to write this book was that I'm sort of hyper-empathetic for my students, and it's one of the reasons why I love to teach. And as a college professor and leading environmental studies programs for the past 10 years, I had noticed that over the last four or five years or so, students were increasingly getting more and more existentially wrought over these issues. And when I say these issues, I don't even mean climate change. At that point, it was mostly just things like environmental injustice and the extent to which humans have affected the environment, sort of all of these realities sinking in in the college level and a lot of the challenges to the things that they had learned themselves growing up, it's overwhelming. And increasingly, young people are feeling the effects of climate change, too. They're, they're no longer, it's no longer an, a distant thing that's happening only to polar bears or something. It's really happening, and they're, they're reframing it as the fires that I'm experiencing or the rising sea levels I'm experiencing or the increased heat where I'm experiencing all of a sudden, these, the dots are getting connected to climate change, and they're, they're no longer thinking of it as something that's going to happen 100 years from now or 200 years from now, but really in their lifetimes. And I think that the despair and anxiety around that was starting to be overwhelming to me as well. I had sort of been able to push those things in, in a cupboard and, and ignore it and just get on with my life and have children and go on being a professor of environmental studies when I realized that the tools I was going to need for myself and for students were really going to be something other than what I had been trained in during my PhD. Let's talk about some of these strategies that you bring up in your book to help people cope with climate anxiety. I wonder if you could highlight a few of the most important big takeaways and kind of like the themes that you have in this book. 
Yeah. One of them is that environmentalism as a movement has generally been a movement that has emphasized scarcity and deprivation and guilt and these kinds of feelings, right? And so I really am really strongly arguing in this book that environmentalism ought to, needs to be reframed and we can take the lead again from young people as a movement of um, abundance and pleasure and desire and the imagination of what the world could possibly be like if we wanted to manifest it and make it. So just to pause there for a sec, you know, pleasure and desire, these were things I did not know could be associated with like the environmental movement before reading this book. So can you explain what does that mean? Yeah. So I think less stick, more carrot, right? You know, we know how dopamine works in the human brain and, and people will keep coming back when there's pleasure associated with things. Environmentalism ought to use pleasure really strategically around how it is that we manifest the worlds that we want. And so instead of operating from a place of look at this awful world that's unfolding ahead of us, instead taking the cue from young people that we ought to be thinking about a world that's unfolding and turning into something much better. And so young people thinking about a future that they desire and imagining that every single day that they are crafting and moving step by step in small ways towards this future, even if all it is is, is creating that world in their immediate scale around them, is an extremely empowering argument to make. And it also taps right into pleasure and desire. And that's what I notice with my students, right? All of a sudden, and this kind of segues into my second main takeaway, when I realized that my students were not just individual bodies in there and that I had individual relationships with them, that in fact, the biggest outcome that they could have would be to have a community with each other and across cohorts and to see each other as, as a lab for the world that they're trying to build outside of college, that this is really what, this is the practice right now. It changed everything about the way I teach. And on that note of community, actually, I'm curious, have you seen changes in the students as you've been like putting these strategies into practice? Have you seen changes in the ways that they've been organizing themselves and, you know, going about divestment or whatever they want to take on as students? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think one of the key things there is, and this would be the third point, which is to resist burnout. And I think a lot of young people sort of maybe wear their exhaustion and their burnout as kind of a badge of credibility that this is the, the way that they're showing that they are invested enough and that they are sacrificing they're sacrificing, that must mean that they are, you know, credibly engaged. One of the things I have students do, one of the exercises is I, we read this book by Adrian Marie Brown called Emergent Strategy. And in Emergent Strategy, Adrian Marie Brown talks a lot about misery resistance, having a practice of misery resistance. And so there's a sense of, instead of waiting around for enough people to care about it, build the community that you have right around you and make the connection be what's valuable, what's going to make the change happen. And so when students start to internalize things like the critique of individualism, that burnout is not a badge of honor, that the planet needs you to not burn out, right? That resourcing yourself and feeling pleasure is part of the way you're going to keep doing this work and also share the love of this work with other people, then they take that into the stuff that they're doing. And the other thing I've noticed that's so different is that they really see that humanity and people and human connections are going to be the way to get where we need to go with the environment rather than seeing humanity and human relationships as an impediment to that. What can we learn from other social movements about the importance of addressing our fears and anxieties and resisting burnout? Yeah, so social movements can teach us that the kind of instrumentalism around 
our actions, the sort of expectation that we're going to see immediate results, that is really dangerous and that that will undermine us and we'll give up right away. And so the folks who I'm thinking about talk a lot about a kind of hope that isn't so instrumental, that doesn't require evidence to prove that your actions are resulting in these kinds of results, right? Social movements can really teach us different emotions that we need to be, you know, deploying and using strategically and how to deal with grief and how to get up and still be resilient in the face of a lot of evidence against you. Social movements have never had a problem thinking seriously about emotion and the role of emotion in advocacy. Environmental studies educators and and educators in general in higher education, we think of young people as leaving their hearts at the door and only bringing in their heads. And social movements know that engaged long-term advocacy needs the heart, hand, and the head. You need action, you need feelings, you need your sort of soul and spirit and feelings, and you also need cognitive analysis and skills. And so the sort of trilogy of all three different modes of being have been completely ignored by higher education in general, and for in general from the, from the climate movement as well. Have you had any students from communities affected by climate change now, and do their emotions differ from students from more affluent communities? That is a very good question, and the answer is an absolute yes. So the CSU that I work in, the California State System, is not a very affluent system to begin with. So my students, I wouldn't say, are privileged relative to lots of college students in that sense. But even then... Environmental studies used to attract more of a white, somewhat more privileged you know, demographic of students. And the dominant emotion that they were having when they would learn these things was kind of disillusionment and really a sense of their pervasive complicity in all of the problems. And so guilt was kind of the main thing. And I called it kind of eco-white fragility, right? There's a sort of white fragility thing, but there's a green-white fragility that's a different thing, right? But to go to the question of, is it different for people who are experiencing it? Absolutely. And so increasingly, environmental studies classes are getting more diverse. And the affect is very different. The emotional response to this material is very different because what they're reading about and learning about is their communities now. It's not just some other community. And if you assume that your students are white privileged environmentalists, that just recenters the white experience again, right? Coming to environmental education with trauma-informed pedagogy, for example, when you assume your students are experiencing trauma of some kind, whether it's displacement or intergenerational trauma or sexualized violence or police brutality or climate trauma, then you have a very different set of approaches and obligations to those students. That's Sarah Jaquette Ray, author of A Field Guide to Climate Anxiety, speaking with Living on Earth, Jenny Doring. Coming up, why digging in a bit of dirt and grass can be healthy for children. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from Sailors for the Sea and Oceana, helping boaters race clean, sail green, and protect the seas they love. More information at sailorsforthesea.org. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bobby Bascom. And I'm Steve Kerwood. And it's time now to take a look beyond the headlines with Peter Dykstra. Peter's an editor with Environmental Health News at ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. He's on the line now from Atlanta, Georgia. Hi there, Peter. What do you have for us today? Hi, Steve. What may be a little good news coming out of uh, New York State, the New York Power Authority, better known as NIPA, which governs the generation of electricity, not just in New York City, but all over the state, cut a deal with environmental justice groups to ensure that six of what are called peaker power plants in poor minority communities in New York City 
be transitioned from fossil fuels to clean energy or conservation. Okay, hey, and remind us what are peaker plants? Peaker plants are sort of a quirk in the power generation grid. When plants have to work overtime, let's say in hot weather to uh, power air conditioners, they will turn on dormant plants, those are the peaker plants, to serve peak power generation times. Right now, New York City has a lot of older fossil fuel plants. Among its 18 peaker plants, about a third of those, they hope, are going to be converted to conservation, to save energy, or clean energy. And what do these old peaker plants burn? Some of them burn really nasty stuff, uh, like heating oil or kerosene. Some are natural gas plants. And every time there's a hot day in Manhattan, there are some poor neighborhoods in the Bronx and Queens and Brooklyn that pay the price in dirty air. But the bottom line is these uh, kinds of plants under this deal will be used a little bit less in New York City. That's a good news story, Peter. What else do you have for us today? It's an interesting piece of research. It's a kind of a small study out of Finland. The study says that greener play areas can help children's immune systems. They show that gravel play areas tend to host fewer microbes because there are fewer microbes. The immunity systems for kids don't build up as well as if you had uh, soil and grass and other things within a playground area. And of course, gravel to grass makes it look a whole lot nicer. Indeed. Now, what kind of diseases are they talking about? A lot of sort of the first level of autoimmune uh, diseases, everything from uh, allergies and asthma to uh, eczema in the skin, type 1 diabetes, inflammatory bowel disease, and even MS. Huh, multiple sclerosis. Folks have argued for years that if kids are too isolated from germs, it's not good for them. That's right. You know, if you want every kid to live in a bubble, you're sort of working against what's called the hygiene hypothesis, where if kids are in an atmosphere where they're kept theoretically immaculate, they're not going to develop all of the defenses that they need to get through life. Okay, Peter. So crack open one of those history books that you got there. Tell me what you see. Well, crack open the history book and out pops a 25th anniversary, October 21st, 1995, at the Tokyo Auto Show. Toyota rolls out its first prototype of the Prius. It's now legendary hybrid gas and electric car. Yeah, I remember two years later at the Kyoto Climate Conference, the execs from Toyota brought around a couple of them for us reporters to ride in, but they wouldn't let us behind the wheel. Well, two years behind history, uh, you could do worse than that. And uh, the Prius has become such an institution around the world, along with its hybrid competitors and more recently, its uh, purely electric vehicle competitors. They've sold a million Priuses or pre I don't know what you'd call it, around the world since that momentous date 25 years ago. Sounds like success for a car. Hey, thanks so much, Peter, for taking the time with us today. Peter Dykstra is an editor with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. We'll talk to you again real soon. All right, Steve. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. And there's more on these stories at the Living on Earth website. That's loe.org.
The great outdoors is wild, rugged, and often cast in masculine terms. So it can be easy for queer and gender non-conforming people to feel excluded from outdoor spaces. But photographer Win Wiley wants to change that. Win spends his spare time hiking in the backcountry as Patagonia, a drag queen complete with wigs, exaggerated makeup, and six-inch heels. Patty posts pictures of herself on Instagram to encourage everybody, regardless of gender identity and sexual orientation, to get out and enjoy nature. She's amassed some 300,000 followers on Instagram and joins us now, in those six-inch heels, to discuss her journey as a queer environmental activist and the solace she finds in nature. Patagonia, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, we're so excited to have you. Growing up in Nebraska, what was your relationship like with the environment, with the natural world around you? Yeah, growing up in Nebraska, I had nature all around me. I lived my life at my grandma's farm and in my backyard. And there's no more vivid memory of childhood than like the giant oak tree in my backyard and the swing attached to the oak tree. And I also spent a lot of time growing up in Boy Scouts, and that brought me outdoors as well. Now, today you're putting together your love of nature and Mm -hmm. your uh, expression of yourself through drag. Can you tell us about that, about hiking outdoors in in full drag regalia? What does that look like, and, and how does it feel for you? I feel very lucky that my passions get to intersect so much. I really feel like for anyone in life, when you can get a chance to intersect your passions and kind of Venn diagram one circle over the other and find that middle ooey gooey like good zone it's so wonderful i feel so alive so when i do drag in the outdoors i feel the most me and yes that means literally backpacking in high heels um, which you can think is a very silly and stupid and dangerous thing but so is riding a mountain bike down a mountain at 45 miles an hour so you know pick and choose your danger in the outdoors i just choose to uh, wear some six inch heels but it's really beautiful for me to get to also be very feminine and be in touch with my femininity in a space I feel is very feminine. And I feel like we're told uh, through media, through through just the narratives and through the archetypes in the outdoors, that the outdoors are a very masculine space. They're very, they're there to conquer. And I enjoy being with them and I enjoy making art with them. It totally changes my uh, my experience with the outdoors when I'm in drag as well. I feel like I notice things I wouldn't out of drag. Really? Like what? You know, when you sit and you do your makeup for three hours and you're in one place, you just notice a lot of things. You notice the birds, you notice the flowers around you. I think I spend so much of my life, especially pre-quarantine, going at such a fast pace. And uh, I think when you're out on the trail, you also can go such a fast pace, even though you're walking, you know, you're, you're going by so much so fast. And I feel like when I'm sitting there, I can just notice what's actually around me and can realize how much of a, how much of like a symphony it all is, how much everything has a purpose, myself too. And what inspired you to start doing drag to begin with? I think what inspired me to do drag was finally wanting to do it for myself. I grew up in Nebraska in an incredibly uh, beautiful environment, but one that basically um, was told to me, only accepted me if I was straight passing. So when I came out, it was conditional love. It was, hey, we love you. This is beautiful. We accept you for who you are, but never do drag, but never want to transition to be a female, but never this, never that. Don't change your voice. Don't don't have a feminine voice. So I think drag for me was the release of kind of a lot of toxicity that I'd internalized uh, since initially coming out. And um, 
I've just fallen in love more and more with drag ever since. I'm fascinated with the freedom that I feel when I'm in drag. And uh, so for someone that hasn't seen your Instagram post, can you describe a typical outfit that you might wear on the trail or even a favorite outfit that you've worn that would really give people an image in their mind? Absolutely. So I just want you to think of the most absolutely absurd things you could ever imagine a drag queen to wear. And that's literally what I'm wearing. So one of my favorite outfits is actually made by one of my friends, Angela. And the dress is actually a full functioning tent. You can take off the dress, you can literally put poles in it and it turns into a tent. I'm not kidding. So she originally designed it as a jacket that was used to basically bring up the conversation of refugees. Um, So she's made hundreds of these coats to give to refugees to be able to have as jackets slash coats and also as tents that they can sleep in as well. But we're repurposing it for the outdoors uh, as well. So it's fun. I think it's definitely fun to just have fun with fashion, to not take it too seriously. Some of my favorite looks are things I throw together like that and or I have a piece that I want to show and tell with you that I want yeah, to describe please. for listeners. That'd be great. So so this is a, uh, a wig made of over 100 pieces of plastic. Oh, um, that... it looks like a giant disco ball of plastic. Yes, it is very, I think, very like Amadeus, like uh, like uh, very much queen old royalty. Like, can we create a uh, two foot tall wig on a head? Yes, we can. And let's do that of plastic. So this is all <laughs> differently like upcycled uh, plastic items. And I'm going to set the phone down just so I can put it on and then I'll pick up the phone again. So give me one second. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. Just so you can see the full effect. I love it. Ugh. Okay. So this is it. It literally... Looks like I am wearing just a giant stacked pile of trash on my head because I am. Well, it looks very, you know, Marie Antoinette to me, you know, like back in that era, there was so over the top with things like that that weren't even trying to look real. Absolutely. And it's great. It like ruffles in the wind. Like you can kind of hear it. We'll do some ASMR. Something I'm thinking about all the time is that drag as a culture is inherently very wasteful. And I'm really trying to deconstruct drag for the purpose of making it as sustainable as can be. So this is a wig made of plastic because plastic wigs you see drag queens wear that look like real hair are literally plastic. So why am I putting new plastic into the world rather than wearing trash? So I am a trashy queen. Here I am. I love it. So I'm going to take this off because it's going to be like audio interference, but yeah, it doesn't look too comfortable either. It's actually really comfortable. It's really like one of my most comfortable wigs. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, super fun. And what kind of reactions do you get from other people on the trail that are probably not expecting to run into a drag queen while, you know, out and about in the woods? Absolutely. Um, it's always a mixed bag. I'm fascinated with how much even just wearing heels, even if I'm not in full drag, but just hiking in heels it's such a disarming uh, moment. Like people will, it'll catch them off guard and they'll notice the heels and they'll light up inside and they're like, oh my gosh, hi, whoa. And it's always a conversation starter, of course. It's not like you see people walking in six inch heels out in nature. But I think it's a really beautiful touch point to learn. And I love opening up conversation with people if they're open to it on the trail. But I've definitely had an experience homophobia on the trail too. Um, I've definitely not felt comfortable at many points on the trail especially when I'm more in full form drag. I've been called a circus act on the trail. 
I've been called other words we will not say on public radio. So it's a mixed bag. Um, but I'm, I'm amazed at how often it's a positive interaction. You know, we've had a few segments on Living on Earth recently about people of color enjoying the outdoors. And I'm sure you're yeah. familiar with uh, the story of Christian Cooper, the African-American mm-hmm. man who was birding in Central Park when a, a white woman called the police on him after he asked her to leash her dog. You know, people of color routinely report feeling unsafe or unwelcome in the outdoors. How does that sentiment resonate with you as a queer person, as a drag queen? Absolutely. I think the practice of drag really lets me know that the hate that I face and the homophobia that I face is a a sliver of what people of color experience, is a sliver of what my trans and non-binary queer community members experience on the trail. It's a very different experience and a very privileged experience that underneath drag, I am a white, straight-passing male. And that's something I'm thinking about all the time and thinking about how much Drag really lets my queerness unfold, Um, but the privilege it is to be able to wipe off makeup at the end of the day, the privilege to be able to pack away my heels and have no one know about my difference or about that I'm a member of a marginalized community. So I think it's a really, really interesting practice, and I'm not at all comparing my experience to theirs, but it it does very much let me know how much work we have to do in the outdoors to truly make them an inclusive place for everybody. And why do you think it's important to um, see queer people in the outdoors? I think it's important to see queer people in the outdoors because nature is so queer itself. Because queer people are people too. Because if the outdoors can't be a place where we celebrate diversity, something that Mother Nature knows is absolutely key. For the longest time, I didn't see myself represented in the queer community because I'm not a person that's going to spend their Friday or Saturday night in a bar or club. And I'm not dogging that. I'm just saying I'm going to be out on the trail. I'm going to be out camping. And so I've been really thankful for this journey with Patty to really remind me how much we can create queer community in the outdoors and how important that is and how many queer people were already out there in the outdoors. Um, We just didn't have as many campfires to kind of gather around. Wynne Wiley is Patagonia, intersectional environmentalist and self-described fetus drag queen, Thank you so much for taking this time with me and uh, sharing your story. Thank you so much for letting one of my uh, baby steps as a drag queen be being on your show. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Paloma Beltran, Jenny Doring, Jay Feinstein, Leah Jablo, Mark Seth Lender, Don Lyman, Isaac Merson, Aaron Mock, Ainsley O'Neill, Jake Rigo, Casey Troost, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show. Allison Lerstein composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts, and like us, please, on our Facebook page, Living on Earth. We tweet from at Living on Earth and find us on Instagram at Living on Earth Radio. I'm Bobby Bascom. And I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems.